This morning, our sermon text comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to read verses 17 through 24 from chapter 4. And you can find this on page 569 of the Bibles that you have. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be back. Uh, for those of you who remember me, I thank you for having me back again. Um, and I do say that, uh, you know, I, Robert Blevins, my associate, and I, we travel around. Last time I believe my wife Joan was with us. And, um, you know, we train people in cross-cultural ministry. We train them in ministry to the poor and how to help churches love on poor folk and disciple the poor out of poverty. Um, the network is in about, we're in about 70 cities, so we are on the road a lot. But I, hear, I just want to say this to you as a request. After you've learned everything you can from me, and what you're hearing is the same old, same old, uh, please still invite me back, because I like just being with you guys. Okay? And so even if you say, well, we've learned everything Randy knows, great. But let's have him back to preach sometime. That would be wonderful, because I love to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for staying faithful uh, in your ministry and in your commitment. I know it's hard sometimes. I know that uh, there are times when you get discouraged. And uh, maybe on any given Sunday, I, this was certainly true for me when I was planting New City back uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s. You'd come in some Sunday mornings and it was like everybody went on vacation the same weekend. Uh, Everybody was gone or everybody was sick. And you, you know, you look at your wife and sometimes she wasn't there. And uh, you go, oh, Lord, will we make it? And uh, God is faithful. All right? Please remember that. God is faithful. Uh, even when we're not. Even when we have trouble. Now, to, to start off today, I want to teach a little song. Because it kind of goes along with my sermon. And it's a little chorus and it goes like this. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a great change since I've been born again. Okay, pretty simple, right? 
Try to sing it with me, all right? There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a great change since I've been born again. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been been a great change since I've been born again. The places I used to go, I don't go there anymore. The things I used to say, I don't say them anymore. The people I used to hate, I don't hate them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born. There's been a high, wide change since I've been born, there's been a great change since I've been born again. Amen. All right. Pretty simple, right? Want to look at our text that has been read for us in Ephesians chapter 4. And the title of my sermon is not as it appears in uh, the bulletin, uh, but it's the same text. And the title I'm going to use this morning is Learning... Learning Christ. Everybody say that. Learning Christ. Amen. Learning Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. I'm going to read it again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds or the, the emptiness, the vanity of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Thus the title of my sermon, Learning Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, the things I used to do. I don't do them anymore. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. That's all right, isn't it? That's a good word. Now, if we could just do that, we'd be great Christians. <laughs> Learning Christ. Now, the, my first point is just simply this. Not like the Gentiles. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He said, well, the, the Gentiles, meaning the people who have not come to Christ yet. Now, usually when he talks about Gentiles or the ethne in the Greek, he's talking about the nations. He's talking about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But here he uses the phrase uh, basically as the summation of all of those people who have not, no encounter with God. They, they have not yet met Jesus Christ. So he says there ought to be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Amen? Amen? There ought to be a difference in the way you live now as a Christian and the way you used to live as a non-Christian. Is that not right? All right? So he says, uh, you learned Christ, and there's a distinction when you learn Christ from the way the Gentiles live. So I want to just for a second talk about non-Christians. And this is, this is a problem for us as Christians sometimes because if you grew up in the church or if you have a radical conversion in Christ and you, you, you read the scripture sometimes, uh, you, can, you can have some strange ideas about non-Christians. What are non-Christians like? Now, of course, most of the world is non-Christian, so I would assume most of you know a non-Christian, right? And some of you have families that are non-Christians. You work with non-Christians. You go to school with non-Christians. Surely in Boston you've met a non-Christian, all right? What are they like? And if you, you sort of have a religious idea of what they're like, you could come to the conclusion, non-Christians are evil. They're nasty. They're just garbage they're trash you know hopefully you don't think that way but there is no doubt that in the new testament uh, the bible makes a pretty clear distinction about the life of the non-christian and the life of the christian and there's a danger in talking about it or thinking about it in being excessive in our thinking about what non-Christians are like. Now, we're Presbyterians here, in case you didn't figure that out. Christ the King is Presbyterian Church. And we believe in Reformed theology. I didn't hear any amens there. But, uh, you should, yeah, yeah, we believe in Reformed theology. And one of, the, uh, one of the basics of Reformed theology is a theological understanding of what it means to not be saved, to not be a Christian. And we use a very fancy term for that. It's called total depravity. And we, we say that if you're not in Christ, you are totally depraved. And that phrase can sound so drastic. And, you know, you ever think about, you know, I don't even know if there are any non-Christians here, but, you know, even if you share your faith at home and you said, you know, you go home, you get saved, you go home to your mom and dad who are not yet Christians and you say to them, mom, dad, you know, you're totally depraved. And how do they receive that? You know, you know, yeah, okay. Your dad, I've always thought your dad was depraved, but, uh, you know. <laughs> 
It's a theological concept. And what it means is you are so damaged and broken by sin, you don't have the ability to come to God on your own. It doesn't mean that you're trash. It doesn't mean you're the worst scum that the world has ever seen. Now, there are some people who you would say they live like scum. You, are, you know, in the history of the world, we have certainly seen people we would even call monsters because they've lived such horrible, wicked lives and they've hurt other people. When we tell non-Christians, we, we think the Bible says you're totally depraved. We are not saying you're as bad as you could be. But we are saying you'll never be as good as you should be in order to get into heaven unless God does a work of grace and mercy in your life. But there's no doubt that the Bible makes a distinction between what happens in the life of a non-Christian and what ought to happen in the life of a Christian. It says here that they are uh, ignorant in their thinking not because they're uneducated. I mean, this, you know, when I come to Boston, I was just asking the question, how many university students live in Boston? Yeah, thank you. Very good, good answer. A lot. Technically, not exact, but, you know, <laughs> thousands and th tens of thousands of them. And, and how many of them are graduate students? And, and you think of the professors who are in research and the incredible learning that goes on here. And a lot of them are non-Christians, and the Bible just said they're ignorant. Why? Because of the callousness of their hearts. In other words, the things they need to know, the, the, the one essential thing they need to know for eternal life, they can't learn in the laboratory. They can't learn thinking philosophically. They, they can't come to it through reason. There's an ignorance there, and it has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with how long you have studied. It has nothing to, to do with how intellectual you are or the, your IQ score. You may be a brilliant person. You, you may be you know, so learned. You, you know what everybody has said about everything. And over this last two years, I've been uh, uh, listening, you know, uh, Audible, uh, you know, uh, The Great Courses. They have a thing called The Great Courses. And I didn't have a great philosophy background in college. You know, I was an English major, so, I, you know, you get philosophy through literature. Not good to get a job, but, you know, I was an English major. And then I went to seminary. I got a lot of theology, and, I, and, I, and I've... I've got a lot of experience, but I want more philosophy. So intellectual history sort of became a, a, a great hobby of mine over the last two years. And so I've been listening to uh, the history of philosophy and the history of philosophical thought and all of these amazing things. And at the end of it all, since the time of, of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Western philosophy, you know, 350 B.C. before uh, Jesus came all the way up to now, no one through philosophy comes to God. The philosophy project has failed. They cannot prove God and some of them have said that, some great philosophers have said that with despair. 
It's not that all philosophers have said, I, I want to give you an argument why you don't have to believe in God. Some of them struggled with it because they wanted to believe in God. And you can't, through your reason, come to him because of the ignorance that is in us as human beings because of the callousness of our hearts. Our hearts got hard against God. Why? Because the Bible says we sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned and all human beings fell into sin, that corrupted us. It broke us deeply. And we are, in fact, the Bible puts it this way. We are dead. In fact, in this very book, Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually. So when you're spiritually dead... You know, have you ever seen roadkill? You know, down in Tennessee, we got a lot of roadkill, a lot of possums. I went to a grocery store once and said, sun-dried possum. You know, it's sort of a tourist joke, you know. But up here, I guess you get a lot of raccoons, you get a lot of dead deer and so forth. Have you ever run up to one of those carcasses in the road and said, let me teach you some tricks? Roll over, sit up. You ever do that with a dead animal? Doesn't work, does it? You say, well, I'd be crazy to do so. Well, in the same way, when we expect non-Christians to come to God without a work of grace, we're equally crazy because a dead soul can't respond to the almighty God unless a miracle happens to them. And that miracle is a word the Bible sums up wonderfully in a word called grace. Now, this is the good news for anybody who's here today. If you do not know God, you can come to know God simply through his mercy. Not through your effort, not through your education, not through your training. So the Apostle Paul here says, this is the state of human beings. I've been reading a lot lately about transcendentalism. Boy, that's Boston all over it. And just a few miles from here was Brook Farm in West Roxbury, uh, where they tried sort of a utopian experiment. Now, I'm talking about people like uh, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Alcotts and uh, uh, Perkins and all these kind of folk. And, and these people were smart, brilliant people, and they cared about a lot of good things. They were against slavery. They were for the rights of workers and the rights of women. They, they wanted to get rid of injustice. A lot of great stuff. But you know, you kind of look at the pattern here in New England of what unbelief did. You know, uh, when the pilgrims came, they were, a lot of them were reformed and they were congregational. And then they stopped believing in the Trinity. And they became Unitarian. And Ralph Waldo Emerson was actually a Unitarian minister. And his unbelief got a hold of him. He couldn't even be a Unitarian. And so he dropped out of that. And it, and it was all self-reliance and, and the glory of man and what we could do as human beings. And even though it seemed like they were progressive, they were actually falling further into darkness. That's the state of the non-Christian, dead in the trespasses and sins. And Paul here says to these Christians at Ephesus, who he had lived with for several years, by the way, in, in preaching and teaching to them, he said, that is not the way you learned Christ. That is, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
giving yourself over to sensuality. And that's what happens to, to a lot of people who don't know Christ. Now, now look, there are a lot of people in, in America who are nice on the outside. I call it California nice. You know, there are, are wonderful atheists and unbelievers who really hate God, but they're really nice to people. They're polite. You know, in the South, we have, you know, we, uh, let me tell you, you know, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have a lot of polite people in the South. And boy, if, if, you, if you've never been to the South, you will notice a difference immediately. We do not honk our horns in traffic. We will sit behind somebody who, is, who has not noticed that the light is green and is sitting there. We will, we will not honk our horn at that person. We will wait through a whole nother change of light before we will disturb them. Men will open doors for women. Sometimes men will actually, when you come to a, dining, a fancy dining table, men at the table will stand up and will seat a lady. We will greet you. We will always say good morning. We'll say, how are you doing? We don't care, but we'll always say it. Incredibly <laughs> polite. But you know, there's a lot of violence in the South. So if you honk your horn, somebody might get out and shoot you. So it's not just, I'm polite and they're polite. No, I'm polite because you may kill me. So, you know, there's a veneer of niceness. That doesn't make you righteous. The South has always had civility. They also had slaves. And they would murder them and kill them and rape them. So be careful that you don't assume that people who are nice on the outside aren't full of what the, the Bible says here about this sinfulness. This greedy to do every wicked thing. Now, now here he's saying, look, that's the description of a non-Christian, of somebody who's darkened in her understanding, callous in her heart. And he's saying this to Christians. You are different. You did not learn Christ that way. That's the way non-Christians, we, we, we assume that, that they're caught up in evil. Now, now listen, again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. Not every non-Christian is as bad as they could be. Hallelujah. I'm really happy non-Christians stop at red lights. I'm really happy that, that there are a lot of honest non-Christians who do not rob my stuff. Anybody want to say amen to these things? I'm really happy that not every non-Christian is a rapist or a sexually molest children. We, we live in a pretty good society overall. I mean, there, there's some good stuff that's going... You know, we, <coughs> sometimes you read the paper and you'll think every man is a beast because we're all trying to abuse women. Please, let's get a clue. Do you know how the world used to be? Would you really like to live in feudal Europe? Would you, would you like to live in, running around in the forest? You know, how, how did we used to... I mean, there's been a lot of progress, okay? People are not as evil as, as they could be. But here's the thing. You come to Christ, 
There needs to be a radical change in your life. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, now here's what Paul says. You, you, you learned Christ to put off the old self. You need to put on the new self and you need to be renewed in your thinking. That's what it means to live the Christian life. I put off the old self. Now, now here, here's some clues you need to understand because he's really talking about the sanctification struggle. Everybody say sanctification. sanctification. Have you noticed that even after you became a Christian, you are still tempted to sin? Now, I'm not going to ask, is anybody here perfect? Because if you said yes, you'd be lying in front of the rest of us and we'd all catch you in your lie. But there are some Christians who actually think Christian theology teaches that once I was a non-Christian, I believe in Jesus, now I am saved, and I'm perfect. I no longer do any bad stuff at all. And it's kind of unbelievable to think somebody would think they could achieve perfection in this life. And, but there are. There are some Christians who actually believe in sinless perfection in this life. Now, usually they redefine sin uh, in order to achieve that level of nonsense. They redefine sin. So uh, racism ex is excused. Uh, overeating is excused. Pride is excused. All of those kinds of sins are sort of, 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 of they're lowered in their problem. <laughs> No, no, if you are a believer and you're self-aware at all, you know that sometimes you still sin. You struggle with it. You should. Now, Paul is saying, he's not saying, I want you to be without sin in this life. He, he knows fully well that there is a struggle. But he's saying that to be a Christian, you don't live qualitatively in that old self anymore. It doesn't control you anymore. You have to put on the new self. Who's the new self? Jesus. Basically, to be a Christian, you need Jesus inside of you to live the Christian life. You on your own, you don't have the power to do it. That old nature that you had as a non-Christian, you get saved, it's still there, but it's different. It has been defeated. It has been crucified on the cross with Christ. That, okay, you got to go with me to Romans 6, okay? Everybody turn in your Bible there for a second. And, and, and let me just read a few verses from Romans 6. I just want you to see what happened to you when you became a Christian. Uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin, now that we have become Christians, that grace may abound? Do we keep on sinning so we keep getting the joy of forgiveness? <laughs> How can we who died to sin little, still live in it? Notice that he says we died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, what he's talking about here is, uh, uh, there's a great theological term. It's called union with Christ. To be a Christian is not just to study the life of Jesus. It's not just to intellectually understand his ethical teaching or even his claims to divinity or even to know the creedal statements about who Christians historically have said he is and he was. To be a Christian is to undergo a spiritual experience whereby you are joined to the work, to the life and work, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's not an intellectual experience, although there are intellectual components of it. It's a spiritual experience. And it's what happened uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when he came to Jesus, and he said, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus said, look, you can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. We, uh, we call it regeneration. You are totally transformed. The Holy Ghost comes upon you, opens your eyes to have faith. You believe that Jesus died for you. He forgives you of your sin and declares you to be righteous. And all that Jesus did has now been wrapped up in your life. You died when Christ died. You were buried when Christ was buried. And your old self, that old nature that we just talked about that's still in you, is crushed by the power of God. So in other words, you are no longer a slave to it like the non-Christian is. You don't have to do what it tells you anymore. Any of you ever turned 18? This is sort of a bad example. But you know when you turn 18 and you might look at your parents, I don't have to do what you tell me anymore. Now, some of you would never have said that at 18 because you wanted them to pay for college. You, know, you would never have, hopefully, never been that disrespectful but there's a sense of, I have achieved my maturity, and now I have to make my own decision. Well, hallelujah, when you come to Christ, the old self no longer has spiritual authority over you. You have been joined to the work of Christ. It's still in the tomb, baby. But yet, there's aspects of it still in us. And that's what the devil speaks to, to tempt us and say, hey, go back to that old life. Come on, you know, and you know, it's subtle. It's, it's not always, uh, it's not always, Logan, you're a preacher. Would you please go out and get prostitutes? Now, there, there are some of us who are subject to those temptations, but, but maybe it's, Logan, why don't you feel a little jealous of the other guys in the Christ the King network? You know, why don't you get jealous of, of guys who are getting books written? That's a very subtle temptation to preachers. We, we're always in constant comparison. You know what I'm talking about? And, and sometimes we feel like we're not good enough. We're, we have not achieved enough. You know, you, the, one of the great places of temptation to go back to the old life for all of us is our pride. 
Anybody here got any? It's one of the greatest problems in marriage. I would be a great husband if I wasn't so sensitive to the disrespect of my wife. And she doesn't even know she's disrespecting me. She just implied that I might have done something a little better. I wish she was here to hear this. Just the, just the, the faint implication that I'm not perfect can drive me into this agonizing, you know, just this imagination of what life would be like to live without this. Lord have mercy. So, how were we taught? We were taught to put off that old self, to not let it rule over us, and to put on the new self, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we get the new self? We must be renewed in our thinking. Now here, I just want to say, I need to bring my sermon to a close. And, and forgive me if it's not uh, as well organized. That, that was my second point. How were we taught? And my third point was the spiritual dimension. And we've already kind of covered that. But uh, let me just tell you some of the ways that we get the renewal of our thinking. And that's what I call the means of grace. Brothers and sisters, if you want to live more like Christ, it's not simply putting a thing on your armband saying, what would Jesus do? It's you need... You've you, you got to be like the Apostle Paul who said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to, if, if necessary, becoming like him in his death. It, it, to, to be like Christ is to have the Lord Jesus living in you. And, and that, when, when we read the Bible, and when we pray, when we sit under the preaching of the Word of God, when we take the sacraments, we are having our faith encouraged in Jesus. You will not live a strong Christian life until you learn to live by grace through faith. It's not, look, look, becoming a Christian is not a revisiting of the commandments. The commandments are helpful to us, but, but the people become Christians and then you make the New Testament just a new set of rules, a new set of do's and don'ts. Did you notice that phrase here at the end of our text? True righteousness. I love the way Paul puts it. Not phony righteousness, not outward righteousness, true righteousness. And there's so much you could say about that because so much of Christianity has become a list of do's and don'ts. And in the midst of trying to be, uh, I don't lie and I don't cheat and I show up on time and I, I don't go to movies and I don't dance and I don't gamble. And I mean, just all, I mean, just can add all the fundamentalistic stuff to it and, and, and never deal with racism. Never care about the poor. God wants true holiness, not facade holiness. He, he, wants, he wants internal change that works from the inside out, not an outside show trying to convince everybody I'm okay, I'm good enough. Listen, you're not okay. You have an old nature in you and you struggle with it. I struggle with it. 
And the challenge from Paul is, you didn't learn Christ that way. You didn't learn Christ going back to that old life. You learned this Christ, that he alone is the one able to help you live holy. And he will, if you will depend on him completely. Now, that's what, what grace is. Grace is coming to the end of yourself and say, I can't live a Christian life. I can't love my wife. I can't love my children. And I can't be responsible. And I can't do what I'm supposed to do, Jesus, unless you help me. That's a spiritual experience. It starts with being born again. It continues living in the power of the Holy Ghost. There's no other way to it. That's what I came by to say. Learn Christ by letting Christ live his life in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. And thank you for the word of God. Please give us true righteousness, holiness that only comes from you. Lord, renew our minds. Help us to be transformed in the way we think. And help us never to go back. We ask this in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.